right, good morning. It's always something with me. Yes, exactly. Time to wake up. You can probably tell from past sermons, I enjoy telling stories about my grandfather. He was quite the character. And we had a, a good time as a part of his funeral. There were several of us that got up and shared billisms, things that he would say often. And he had a whole litany of sayings that he was fond of. One of my favorite was, that's a darn fool thing to do. And he was really fond of saying that about my dad. You see, Grandpa grew up, and to him, a good time was to go golfing or to go to a baseball game or to go fishing. And to my dad, all of those things were extremely boring. He would do those things after he turned 90. My dad liked to ride motorcycles and climb mountains and anything that had adventure in it. And to my Grandpa, all of those things were a darn fool thing to do. I heard him say that often about my dad and even occasionally about me. So I got to think about that this week and I was thinking, you know, what is a fool? A fool is really someone who doesn't put thought into what they're doing. Oftentimes as children, even young people, we do foolish things. If you do foolish things constantly, that makes you a fool. I think there was probably a time in my life where I could have been considered a fool. I think to, in college, just some of the dumb things we did. I remember there was one time it had been cold for over a week in Virginia where I was living, and, and then it snowed, and my best friend and I took my Jeep out on these logging roads and a place we'd never been, and we looked down this hill, and we saw this big lake down there. And so we got out of the Jeep and we climbed down this hill and it was steep and it was snowy and it was slippery. And we knew it would be hard to get back up. We get down to the bottom and the lake is frozen solid. At least it looked frozen solid. And so we stepped out a, a, just a couple feet onto the ice and felt solid. So a little farther out and felt solid. So the next thing you know, the two of us are out there just running around, sliding on the ice. And I remember I stood up, and it sounded like someone fired a gun. The crack of the ice was so loud. And so then both John and I <laughs> shuffled back to the edge, and we got back on solid ground. And John said, that had all the makings of a great disaster. <laughs> it was a foolish thing to do. And I look back at that time in my life when you're, 19 or 20 years old and you feel invis invincible you're prone to do foolish things things you don't put thought into today we're going to be looking at galatians 3 1 through 14 paul is going to call these galatians these churches that he's writing to he's going to call his readers fools Let's read the passage. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works of miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of, the, of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. 
So then those who are of the faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And so our big idea today is that it is complete foolishness to abandon grace. These Galatians had abandoned what Paul had taught them, this, this gospel that was his, his whole life, that after he had received it, that nothing else mattered to him but to share it and to complete the will of his Lord, which was to make disciples. And he's seeing these people who have accepted the gospel walk away from becoming disciples, choosing instead to try to earn their way. It is complete foolishness to abandon grace. As we look at this passage, we're going to see, as Paul is trying to turn them from their foolishness, that he's going to point to four things to try and turn them back, to try and correct their thoughtlessness. The first thing he's going to point to is the crucifixion in verse 1. Again, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Again, when I think of calling someone a fool, I often think of my grandpa, but this also reminds me of a movie from my childhood. Seemed whenever our junior high or high school youth group would have an overnighter, we would do these things at the church where we would stay there all night and play games and watch movies, that we always ended up watching the movie Princess Bride. And in this movie, near the, near the end, there is a confrontation between Vinzini, the bad guy, and Wesley, the good guy. And they're having a battle of wits. It's a battle to the death of which cup the poison is in. <laughs> the bad guy, he, he looks at him and goes, You fool! You've fallen to one of the classic blunders. So Paul is telling them here, You've fallen prey to one of the classic blunders. To think that you could do this on your own. He's just laid out for them over two chapters his own experience with the gospel and then what he's done with it afterwards and how it came from God and God alone and then he's laid it out for them ending with that he doesn't nullify the the crucifixion of Christ he doesn't nullify the grace of God in verse 21 of chapter 2 I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. And again, as we said last week, that is insinuating that these Judaizers did nullify the grace of God. That if what they said is true, then Jesus did die needlessly. And then he begins this chapter with the very next verse, You foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? It is complete foolishness to mix law and grace. And who has bewitched you? The Galatians were acting like someone had cast a spell upon them. That they couldn't use their minds because of whatever someone had done to them. It reminds me of those videos you might see of a, a hypnotist who can get a whole group of people to walk around and cluck like chickens when he says a certain word. And that's how they were behaving. 
They weren't acting like rational people, and so he's, he's trying to turn them back. And I, as I said, the first thing he points them to is the crucifixion. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. While the Galatians were not present there that day in Jerusalem to see Christ crucified, they still lived in the Roman Empire and knew exactly what a crucifixion was. The public portrayal of Christ crucified. The Greek here is a, a perfect participle, which it's pointing to a continuing result. And Paul isn't saying, I think of that, I, I think of the Catholic Church that on their cross, Christ is still hanging there. We, we worship a risen Lord. He's not pointing to Jesus being continually crucified, but the, the work that he did was the, the turning point in our salvation history, that one act. And he's saying that the Galatians would not have found this, this false teaching of the Judaizers so enticing if they were keeping their eyes on what Jesus Christ did for them. And again, as he had just told us, it was not done in vain. As he, he says there that who, before whose eyes Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, I think Paul is pointing to the fact that when he was with them, among these people who knew exactly what a crucifixion was, he painted the picture perfectly for them of what their God did for them, of what Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, did for them on the cross. And they had understood the gospel. They had understood what Jesus did. And that was why Paul is so upset. I can imagine this might have been how my algebra teacher felt when I was in high school, that we would be going through a, a problem, and one day I would get it, and I would come to class the next day, and it was just gone. <laughs> just have to teach me the same thing over again. That's what Paul's saying here. You had it. You know about his crucifixion, about the work that he did because you couldn't do the work. And you're so foolish to leave that. The second thing that Paul is going to point to these Galatian readers is their own experiences. Their own experiences. In verses 2 to 5, Paul is going to ask his readers four questions about their own experiences to point out their current foolish behavior. The first question in verse 2 is, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? Verse 2, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer to just this one question should settle the whole debate. It was obviously not by keeping the law. They wouldn't have, these were Gentiles, they wouldn't have known what the law was. And yet, as we read in Acts some weeks ago, that when they heard that this gospel was for them, they received it with joy. And it was by faith that they came to eternal life, and it was by faith that they received the Holy Spirit. Paul here is assuming their salvation because he was with them in those moments. He knew that they were believers. He's saying that justification, which we looked at last week in chapter 2, verse 16, Paul said there, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Again, justification is the idea of a judge declaring you not guilty. And so, are being justified and at that moment receiving the Spirit, which they had, came from faith and nothing that they had done. They had not yet begun to live a Christian life, let alone try to fulfill the law, and yet God had given them their holy, His Holy Spirit 
because they were justified, they were saved. And this is a gift. He had given them this gift of the Holy Spirit. And since God gives this gift to us when we believe the gospel, believing the gospel, what Paul is saying, is clearly superior to the law, clearly superior to what these Judaizers are telling them, to what they have bewitched them with, fooled them, deceived them. know from other places in Paul's writing that as we're looking at this idea of receiving a not guilty verdict in the spirit, that the spirit is our is our guarantee of our future glorification. Turn with me over to Ephesians 1. Verses 13 and 14, Paul says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. That this is our having the Spirit, which they had, is our promise of what is to come. It's a taste of the inheritance that we will receive for eternity. And since the Spirit comes to us by faith, our future glorification, our future hope depends, it hangs on that faith, not on the law, not on obedience, not on anything that they could do. Second question Paul asks them in verse 3 is how is God sanctifying you? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? To be sanctified means to be set apart. We know that when we are saved, there's a, an aspect of positional sanctification. We have been set apart for God as His child, but as we go through our lives, as we become more and more like Christ, we view that as our, our growing sanctification. That we become more and more set apart for God, that more and more we become like Christ. And Paul says to them here, you, you started this by faith. That was the only way it could start, and now you think you're going to finish it by following the law? justification had been a work of the Holy Spirit in response to their believing faith. And so as they were growing in their faith, that had to be through faith as well. If you turn from what got you there and look to yourself, it's pointless. He says, are you being perfected by the flesh? To be perfected means to be brought to completion. So in essence, he's saying, are you trying to finish what God started by your own flesh? Metaphorically, Paul uses flesh for our sin nature. Here, I think it's even broader than that. It's just our own human will. But make no doubt about it, that human will and our ambition and everything that we can do is tainted by sin. So there's no way that it is going to bring anything to perfection or completion. His third question is, have your experiences been useless? Have your experiences been useless? Verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. Again, in vain means to have no fruit at the end of it no spiritual meaning to it. The word suffer here in the Greek is epithet. It means to be affected or have been affected, to feel, have a sensible experience, or to undergo. And also, in a, in a negative sense, can point towards what we would consider suffering, but it leaves us with 
What is Paul talking about here? If we're looking at actual suffering, what we would think of as suffering, we could look to the fact that these Galatians, remember, in, the, in their world, this new faith in Christianity, the Jews were extremely looked down upon because they only believed in one God. That was one of the many reasons that the world around them despised them. And so they, these Galatians would have given up their faith in many gods for a faith in one God and I'm sure would have received persecution from those around them. A while back we read through Acts 14 as we began Galatians and there we saw that Paul was beaten and stoned while he was there in their region by Jews who were persecuting them. So there may very well have been actual persecution among these churches. And if that's the case, Paul's saying that all these things you're going through, these hardships you're facing because of your faith, they'd be pointless. If you had to work for it, you'd just be like everyone else. Why would you have suffered at all if it was all for having to work for it? But if you're looking at suffer more broadly in that sense of things you've experienced, it would refer to their whole life since they had come to faith. Good things, bad things, all of it. The point would be that all of those, all those experiences would be I think that that may be what Paul is pointing to because you look at through all of these things that he's trying to turn their eyes towards. They're all positive things that they've having the spirit, their sanctification. So we're going to get to miracles. All these things are positive. But I was thinking about this, whether it's positive or negative. You know, how sad is it when you see people do something for nothing? I have a very close friend who, after high school, he went to a couple different colleges and after a while decided that school wasn't for him and, and that was great. And he had several jobs that he enjoyed and then he, he started cooking in a restaurant and he fell in love with it. And he decided that was what he wanted to do with his life. And throughout high school, he had no motivation for school. And over the times he'd attempted college, he had no motivation for school. And then he enrolled in Le Cordon Bleu, which is one of the finest culinary institutes in the world in Paris, but they have satellite schools around the world. And he lived about where I grew up in Southern California. It's probably about an hour and a half away from the one in Beverly Hills. It's in LA, near there. And so every day he would work at the restaurant. He would drive the hour and a half to school, spend four or five hours at school, and drive home either working a shift in the morning or a shift after work. And he did this for two years. And then he graduated and he got a job as a sous chef at the St. Regis, which is an exclusive resort. And then a few months later, he got in a car accident and he quit cooking. He just said his back couldn't stand to stand. He couldn't handle cooking anymore. And I just looked at it and I was like, you got to figure out some way to get back in the kitchen. <laughs> and he was gifted. He was an amazing chef. And he was being paid handsomely for it. And he had put in so much work and long hours and positive experiences, learning and hardships and everything that he did. And yet it seemed like at that moment it was all useless because he gave up on it. That's what Paul is saying to these, these believers. You... You've believed in everything that you've gone through since then, whether it was rejection by your families or this new found life you found in the church through Christ Jesus and the spirit he's given you. All of it's pointless if you walk away. It didn't nullify where they would go in eternity. Paul has said that they are believers, but there's something to be said for the opportunity we're given in this life right now to serve God and live for him. And they were walking away from that. So Paul says, not only is the future bleak, but look to everything you've been through and turn back. Fourth question he asks is, 
how do you account for the miracles that you have seen? Verse 5, so then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? God did not perform miracles among them because they earned them. They weren't somehow special and worthy of God doing miracles among them. But he did them. He gave them freely because they had believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here Paul is trying to appeal to the fact that these the miracles that accompanied his preaching were because of the gospel that he was preaching. Presumably, these Judaizers who came with their false gospel did not have the same affirming work of God that surrounded their ministry. In that verse, when, when Paul says that about the works and miracles among you, it's a present tense that gives the idea that these things were still it wasn't just when Paul was there it was that he had preached this and the miracles surrounded his work and yet they had continued and now now they're believing these Judaizers who have no such confirmation from God about their gospel that Paul did he's doing this to remind them of the Holy Spirit's miraculous confirmation of what he was preaching So Paul has asked these four questions, trying to remind them of their own experience. We think of acting foolishly and turning away from things we should know. Our own experience, we can reflect on things we've been through. In relation to spiritual things, I can reflect in my own life the way God has seen me through trials, and so I can know in the future that he will, again, see me through, and I don't have to act on my own. I don't have to be foolish, and that is what Paul's doing here. He's saying, look to your own lives. And again, these believers didn't have to look back far. This is probably a year or less after they believed. And he's saying, God has already done so much, and you've experienced so much, or even suffered so much, if that was what he's getting at. And you've seen miracles God is making you more like him through sanctification, through his spirit. All of these things, and you've turned from it. So he's trying to point to their own experience to turn them back. The third thing that he will point to to turn them back is the scriptures. Verses 6 through 9, he will point to the scriptures. Verse 6, even so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The Judaizers, in emphasizing the Mosaic law, they were pointing towards Moses, but Paul says, let's go back even further. These Judaizers who were trying to get you to become Jews, well, let's go back excuse me, to the Father of the Jewish nation. Let's go back to Abraham. Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And in saying that, he's quoting from Genesis 15, 6. Turn with me to Genesis 15. Starting in verse 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And 
Abram said, Since you have given me no given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Again, I've, I've touched on this before, but in, in Genesis 12, God had promised to Abraham that he would bless the nations of the earth through him. As we look at this, Abram, not Abraham yet, has heeded the word of the Lord. He has followed, he has left his home, he has not done things perfectly. He didn't leave his whole family, he took some of them with him. He went to Egypt, he didn't trust God, but he is nevertheless, as we look to people who do the work, none of us do it perfectly. Abraham was pretty sold out for God in leaving everything that he knew. And yet this is the moment that scripture tells us that God viewed him as righteous was the moment that he believed. He believed that promise that God would bless all the nations through him. And then God says, look at the stars. Your descendants will be that many. And in looking at that, he believed God that that would happen. And through one of those descendants would come the promised Messiah. And in that moment, in believing God, it was accounted to him as righteousness. Abraham could and did do nothing but believe God's promise that he would do something supernatural for him. Back to Galatians 3, verse 7 says, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And so he's saying this isn't, this isn't, something that Abraham did. You're looking at the these Judaizers again trying to get you to become Jews. The father of the Jews didn't become right with God by works. It was by faith. And as we read in Romans 4 earlier, this happened prior to God giving Abraham the sign of circumcision. This happened to him prior to that. It was only his faith that made him righteous in God's eyes. So in verse 7 here, Paul is extending his argument from Abraham to his posterity and to his children, his children's children, and so on. And then he raises this question that's going to continue throughout chapter 3 and 4. So who are the, the true children of Abraham, and that that thought will conclude in chapter four, in the verses twenty-one to thirty-one. He's going to tell an allegory of the two mothers, Sarah and Hagar. That will conclude that thought. But here he he brings up this idea that if we're looking at at what makes us right before God, is it being a descendant of Abraham, or making yourself like a descendant of Abraham by becoming circumcised and following the law, or is it by faith? So he's saying here that the spiritual sons of Abraham were not his physical descendants, but those who believed God, whether they were Jews or Gentiles. I've said this before too, but I will say it again. I, Paul is not in any way here nullifying God's promises to the children of Israel. He's simply pointing out that this this promise of a Messiah through him, of blessing the world through him, had been fulfilled in Jesus. And so as we're looking to be a part of that blessing, that blessing comes only through faith. And that makes us his spiritual descendants, not his actual descendants that will be partakers in the covenants that God made with Abraham. 
or that he made with his descendants, but that we are partakers in eternal life, that we are partakers in the Messiah who came for the whole world. So in verse 9, So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. And here I think he's, he's bringing out that Genesis 12, that God said that he would curse those who cursed Abraham and bless those who blessed them. He says it again in Genesis 22:18 that he would bless the world through Abraham. And we should understand this promise of, again, this promise of a blessing to all nations would be Jesus. Paul clarified that this is what God always intended that those who would believe in Jesus would receive this blessing and again these are Gentiles they would have it's interesting Paul going back to the scriptures here because you know if he was doing this with even the where he read Romans 4 earlier there was Jews and Gentiles in the church in Rome He's dealing with almost exclusively Gentiles here. What I think it points to is that when he shared the gospel with him and the time that he did spend with him, that he taught them these things. And so he's, again, pointing them back to what he has taught them, to what they should know. That this God that they have believed in to save them, this God that they have now experienced in their lives said thousands of years prior that it was by faith that this was going to happen. And so no matter what the Judaizers are trying to tell them, they need to look to what the scriptures actually say. And the scriptures don't point to keeping the law of Moses. They point to faith. That Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's where he's pointing fourth and last thing he's going to point to them to is the purpose of the law. That if they want to follow this law, if the Judaizers have deceived them, bewitched them, if they are that foolish, then let's look at what the purpose of the law is. In the previous verses, as we look to the scripture, Paul was setting forth this positive argument about justification by faith, that this is what the scripture says it is. And here he's going to turn and he's going to argue negatively against the possibility that anyone could ever be justified by working for it. Verse 10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So living under the law doesn't bring a blessing, it brings a curse. The reason is that if you are going to try to obtain eternal life or obtain God's blessing by working for it, then you have to keep it all perfectly. And no one can ever do that. Even one failure will bring about the curse of God. Paul here is citing Deuteronomy 27, 26. A book, or a passage from the book of the law. Something these legalist Judaizers would have held on high, this, the book of the law. And he's doing so to support his argument that there's no following the law to receive God's blessing. The law is like, I've heard the saying that the law is like a chain that however many links there are in the chain, you have to forge them all perfectly if that chain will lift you to God. If you're clinging to that chain, you better hope that you've made every single one of those perfect. And none of us can. And the scriptures prove that throughout. There was no one perfect. 
Abraham was obviously not perfect. Moses was far from perfect. God didn't even let him go into the promised land. David did despicable things. And those are the elite of the elite of the patriarchs. They couldn't keep the law. And so if you have to keep it perfectly, there's no way. The blessing that people experience because they're doing God's will is not something they earn. God gives it to us freely by grace. What people earn and deserve is judgment. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6.23. That's what we earn. If you try to earn it, you're going to earn death each and every time. You already have because you've already broken the law, but even going forward, there's no way you could keep it perfectly. And so you have to find another solution. Paul's already given them that solution by grace through faith. Continues in verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul goes on here to quote Habakkuk 2.4 to show that justification by faith has always been God's method. Again, we looked at what he did through Abraham. He says that look in different sections of the Old Testament scripture that these Judaizers are trying to hold over you. In the section of the law, it said that no one can keep it perfectly. Here in Habakkuk, from the prophet's section, it says that the righteous live by faith. Since Scripture says that the person who is righteous by faith will live by faith, no one can be justified by the works of the law. Verse 12, However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by faith. Again, responding to this idea that <clears throat> maybe it's both law and faith that I need to be right with God. This verse says that they're ex they can't work together. They're mutually exclusive. There are two entirely different ways to get to God. Law and faith are apples and oranges. It's not the same thing. Law requires works, but the gospel requires faith. In verse 10, Paul argued that anyone who seeks justification by works of the law will suffer God's curse. He or she will do so because we cannot keep the law perfectly. In verses 11 and 12, he's argued that justification by the works of the law is impossible just by definition. Then he brings them back to the answer. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So if the law shows that every person is under God's curse, because none of us can keep it perfectly, how can we escape God's wrath? Because Jesus became a curse for us. Romans 4 earlier, verse 15 said that for the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. That Jesus has become that curse for us and so that we, we don't have to bear its consequences. Paul reminded his readers that Christ paid the penalty for their sins and he made their justification possible, not the law that was a curse voluntarily took the wrath of God that was directed towards us. He took it on himself. He became the object and bearer of God's wrath because he's the only one that could. 2 Corinthians 5, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
that's where our hope lies. Not in any kind of obedience that we could do. The proof that Christ became a curse for us was the fact that his executioners hung him on a tree. And under the law, this was a fate of criminals whom God had cursed. God didn't curse Christ because he hung on a tree. Christ hung on a tree because God had cursed him. His quote there again is from Deuteronomy from 21-23, that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Again, part of the law that Jesus fulfilled. He concludes in verse 14, in order that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. It comes back around to that first question he asked them, the question that sort of settled everything. Did you receive the Spirit by faith or by working? In order that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, come to the Gentiles that we will receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Of course it was by faith. And just the way Abraham believed because of what Jesus did, now you as Gentiles can believe and receive that blessing that God promised all those years ago. Christ's death resulted in two blessings, the justification that Abraham received by faith, they could now receive by faith. And they got the blessing of the promised Holy Spirit that all believers got. Another story about my grandfather. There was a, a time when I had, I actually hadn't even started working at the funeral home full time yet. It was in one of the summers I went up there during college and I had been there the previous summer and I had gone back to work again and while I was gone for those eight or nine months, whatever it was, they had sold the limousine that we had for funerals and bought a new one. I had never driven it before. It was my, I think it was like the second day I'd been there. They put me on a funeral as the guy who'd be driving the limo. So I, I went to get it out of the garage, and the, the gentleman who was sort of the caretaker at that location, Billy, Billy told me, Craig, it's got enough gas in it for today, but make sure you fill it before you bring it back. Said, okay. So I got in the limo, and I drove to the location where the funeral was, and by 9 a.m. it was already like 88 degrees. It was a hot, humid morning. So the director told me, even though we weren't leaving to go to the, the church for another hour, he said, leave it running, keep the air conditioner on. I said, okay. And we go to uh, this large Catholic church that took about 25 minutes to get to from the funeral home. And you know, mass takes just a little over an hour. He said, leave it running. It's hot. Okay. And we drove to a Catholic cemetery that was almost an hour away. And uh, we're at the cemetery. And the director says, make sure you leave that car running. We were there for about 40 minutes before the family said their goodbyes and got back in the limousine. And as I'm driving them back to the funeral home, I'm looking at the gas gauge, and it has steadily, oh, your direction, gone down. And I'm thinking to myself, well, this would be embarrassing, but I may need to stop and get gas. And right as I'm thinking that, the freeway we were on completely stopped. And we're sitting there in stop-and-go traffic. And now, even though the air conditioner is blasting in this car, I am sweating. I am sweating bullets because I feel my back pocket and realize I ran off without my wallet. And so if I did have to stop for gas, I'm going to have to borrow, ask to borrow money from the family who has just buried their father. And so I decide, well, I'm going to try. And we, we made it back on fumes. Uh, I was 
obviously relieved and I, I filled the, the limo up and I returned it and I the location where we kept the limo is where my grandparents both went to work every day and I went upstairs and grandpa wasn't around but grandma was and she said you know everything all right I must have had this look on my face like I had just dodged a bullet and I told her I said I told her everything that happened I, said, I can't believe this happened but I told her well the next day my grandfather calls me into his office and just starts screaming Grandma wasn't trying to get me in trouble, but she had told Grandpa what happened, and he lost it. And at one point, I, I said to him, well, Billy told me that there was enough gas in it for that day. I had never seen that old man move that quick. He was up out of his chair and around his desk. He literally grabbed me by the collar and drug me to the window of his office that looked at their big sign out front. And he said, does that say the Billy Martin funeral home or the Rutherford funeral home? And he said to me, I've, you know, this, at this time the business was almost 80 years old. He said, you're trying to destroy on one funeral what we've built for 80 years. I obviously thought he was overreacting a bit. But this is what Paul is doing here. He is grabbing the Galatians by the shirt collar and he is dragging them to the window and saying, look, what you're doing is ruining everything that I brought to you. The joy and the hope and everything that you had when you received the gospel, you're throwing it away. He's not pulling any punches here. You foolish Galatians. You're thoughtless. That day, my grandpa was pointing to our name on the sign saying, think of everything that you are representing here. Paul is pointing to what they have believed. Again, to the end of last chapter, to the beginning of this one, through the end of the passage we just read, it all hangs on what Christ did on the cross. Did he do it needlessly? Or was there a purpose for him suffering? Paul says there was a purpose. It was for us. And that's what we need to keep our eyes on. That's what they needed to focus on. 2,000 years later, we cannot take our eyes off of what Jesus did for us when it comes to how we look at pleasing God. All of our life is to be led by faith, knowing that the works he does are through us. It's not us. We need to be open to his working, but we need to be focused on him and not ourselves.